0: You don't fall out of love as much as out of repentance. That's a brilliant line. All right, let's go ahead and get right to work with some prayer. Go ahead and join me. Jesus, uh, we come before you today as your church, as your people, uh, as those whom you have purchased. You have redeemed. You have transformed. You're bringing us into your image. And we pray that that would be true in every facet of our life, that it isn't just the spiritual corner of our existence that we call our Christianity, but it invades every part of what we're about. I pray that for the young men and young women in this room that are yet to enter into marriage, that they will already begin to learn what a Christ-centered marriage looks like. I pray for those of us in marriage that we will see more and more clearly what it is the gospel leads us to. And so I pray that you guide us. I pray that you love us. I pray that you are tender and sensitive with us. I thank you that you know our weaknesses, you know our sins, you know the the places that we're just, we're just not great. And yet you are bringing us along in those things. And so we love you, praise you, thank you, Jesus, and we seek you today in your good and awesome name. Amen. All right. so this morning is essential husbands. Jesus calls husbands to act like him. And I want to tell you that husbandry to speak on the topic is no easy thing. You may think that next week's gonna be harder when I talk about wives and I'm a dude. No, this one's hard. This one is uniquely hard. And I think for a variety of reasons, it's hard because, again, part of the task is me looking at what God says and then measuring against my own life. And and what happens inevitably is I go, I am not the husband that you want me to be, God. So how do I get up on a Sunday and then I start talking about what it means to be a godly husband? You know, I'm like, I stink at this when I look. And I want to be better. And so I am as much a student as anybody. I don't come this morning and and I don't say things about marriage or about being husbands or next week about being wives or marriage in general. And I'm not not trying to say like, hey, I figured it out and here's what you need to do. If anything, I'm saying God has given us the model. And I think we just need to pursue that. But that, that makes it hard. I think another thing that makes it hard is the fact that when we look at our overarching culture the topic of husbandry is not uh, uh, well-defined or well-received or well-respected. In fact, this week, I went to that abomination Google, all right? And um, that's for our Microsoft people. All right, so, uh, and, and, and I just typed in husbands. That's all I did. First page, top of the thing, husbands. You want to know the very first thing that came up? Ashley Madison website. And if you're not familiar with this, this is a website where men can go to have an affair. It is a dating service for marrieds. That's the very first thing that came up. Now, it was an ad, granted, but it must be effective. The next thing was an online sitcom called Husbands about two gay men that meet in Las Vegas and get married when they're both drunk. That was the second thing. I had to scroll through the page to find anything positive on husbands. The sixth thing was mail order husbands. Who has a mail order husband? You know? I mean, this nice man named Wang Cho says he's going to be an ideal mate, and he's selling himself, but I don't think that's good. Alright? It's not good. And then at the bottom of the page, it was all these videos to sitcoms of husbands that look like idiots. Right? So, this whole page was just nothing good about husbands now if you go to bing you don't get quite as bad a list so go to bing that's my push um (laughs) thank you thank you microsoft all right so but 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 it's true i mean it's just like there is just this painful truth that says there's for whatever reason husbands are not uh, just the most celebrated the most uh appreciated the 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 definition of things uh, you know that, that people adhere to it's just it's lost in some of that popular culture and so that makes it difficult as well. And then I think the other thing that makes it difficult is when we start to look at the Bible, what a biblical husband is, is not an easy thing. I mean, it's really not an easy thing. I, we're going to see that what a man is called to as a husband uh, is work and sacrifice. It is an investment where you definitely give up yourself for another. That is the heart of a husband. Right, so we're going to try to look at all of that this morning. But the, the trick in this is we have to start not really with husbands. We have to start at this more fundamental place of marriage in general. right? Because you know, really, as you're going to see, my heart this morning is to kind of get the big picture on things. I, I can't get into all the details. I want the big picture to understand the big ideas. And as soon as we get into husbands, wives, and marriage, instantly... We're into these broader topics and these things that we have to consider and address and and make sure we handle with care and with dignity and certainly with biblical authority. And so when you look at biblical marriage, it requires us to instantly address a handful of things. The first thing it requires for us to address is this book right here. This idea of the authority of this book. Do we believe that God has given us the Bible for our good, for his glory, that it has the answers for life, and what it says is what we do? Do we believe that with conviction? I believe because of the position of Redemption Church, almost everybody sitting in this room is going to say, yes, this is God's word, and we want to do it. Man, I came close to a Joel Olstein moment there. was That freaked me out. This is my Bible. Okay, so... Do we believe this? Look, that's the authority issue. In fact, it's interesting too, when you think about authority, there was a bumper sticker that I, I saw a while back. It's a bumper sticker that says, "God said it. I believe it. That settles it. And maybe you have this on your car. I'm going to ask you to erase part of it. All right? So because that middle line should be scratched out, doesn't matter if I believe it. God said it that settles it. Trust me. I have been studying the Bible for about 20 years and there are some things in here I don't like. There are some things in here where I go. That's just downright nutty. That does not get my stamp of personal approval. And guess what? It doesn't matter what I think. It really doesn't matter. There's going to be things that this book confronts in me. There's going to be things this book challenges in me. There's going to be things in this book. This is Matt. You just stink on that point. And God wins. Every time. And so when we get into any topic, we're we're going to look at the Bible and go, man, I don't know if I like that. We have to then decide how do do we see this, this book in general? Is it the authority of my life? Is it this? Or do I say it's this on the things I like, but it's this on the things I don't? And I put myself over it, right? So that's, it's always going to be the fundamental question when we look at anything. And I think this topic is going to be one of those things. The second thing that we have to address is assumptions regarding sexism and egalitarianism. In other words, there's these assumptions where people sometimes look at the Bible and they say, oh, Paul was a sexist. Paul was a sexist, but Jesus, he was all about equality. And people will start to break these guys up like they weren't on the same team or something. You know, Paul and Jesus were on the same team. And they both preach the exact same idea that Jesus came to liberate. Jesus came to free. Jesus came to show the supreme value of all. It doesn't matter if you're a slave or free. You're for the Jewish nation or if you're a Gentile, if you're a man or you're a woman. There is equality in God. You bear the image of God. They preach that, both of them, equally. And at the same time. They showed that there was diversity and difference and distinction and design, this compatible nature of men and women, husbands and wives, and that that gives glory to God. So we can't start looking and saying, well, was Paul pro-woman? Of course he was, because they bear the image of God. Was Jesus more pro-man or pro-woman? It's a silly debate. It's all about the value of the image bearers, but they have designs that are different. And so we address the fact that it's not about one or the other. It's about what God is celebrating through design. The third thing to address is the fact that this message and the one next week, uh, we're going to be looking at anchor points way more than we're going to be looking at just these pieces of advice. All right? and, and here's why I say that. Uh, clearly, there is something wrong with marriages today. I mean, clear. And here's the proof. If you go to Barnes & Noble, you go to whatever your favorite bookstore is, go ahead and find the marriage and family section. There's a reason it's huge. It's huge because there's problems. It's huge because there are broken marriages and people are wanting to figure out what's the new point, what's the new tip, what's the new idea that's going to make my marriage better. And so every book, the only section that might be bigger than that is the diet section for the same reason. Right? I mean, I don't mean this as a slab, but it's like, you know, the average person probably experiences forty to fifty diets in their lifetime. Why? They're trying to find the right tips to work for them over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And in the same way, it's true to marriage. There's <laughs> just like people are like, I'm not happy, I'm not fulfilled, we're not communicating, there's a problem. I need to find a book. And I'm all about that. I don't want you to think I'm not into the books. I'm not into seminars. I'm very much about that. My thing today is to say, I I want us to deal, though, with kind of these principal areas, foundational things. And then from that, all of the good tips and advice kind of pour into that. But I, I think we need to understand foundation. Sometimes that doesn't get addressed as perhaps it should. And so that's sort of the intent today, the big ideas that we want to understand. And then last... Biblical marriages requires us to address a very simple truth, and that is that great marriages are hard. Great marriages are hard. The marriage that you might look at and go, wow, those people are so in love, so committed, so on fire, so sold out for each other. That stuff doesn't just happen. I think sometimes we think that. We look at a really great marriage and go, oh, they just, they they found the right person. Oh, they just, they got lucky. That's dumb talk, all right? It is. There's no get lucky for a great marriage. Great marriages are great because those people work at it. They work at it. This notion that says, no, 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 you just got to make sure you marry the right person. I will say this until I'm dead. Whatever you think is the right person when you marry them, just wait in 10 years. And they will change. They will be different. Give them 20 years. Give them 50 years, they will very much change. Their personality will change, their interests will change, their hairline will change, their weight will change. It all changes. And and, and so you have to work at every season. Some of you say, oh man, my marriage, I want it to be better. Don't think it's just going to happen because they change. That's a good one. Um, Or because it just magically appears. But because you, you work. You work, right? That's the key in all of it, that you actually make the investment, right? Because as I think about marriage, um, there, there, there is this simple idea. And, and it actually comes out in the video, which is that really the heart behind marriage for God is not so much to make us happy, which is usually the bench, benchmark that we shoot for, when really what God wants to do is make us holy. Uh, not just happy, but truly holy. Holy. And, 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 and here's the thing. If if you want to just be happy, just date and then dump them when you're bored. It's true, right? I mean, you can be perpetually happy. You just date 50 people. This is awesome. You're boring. I'm going to a new Disneyland. You know what I mean? You,
1: Hey, you didn't make any
0: commitments, any vows, any oaths date, then dump. You'll be happy till you get dumped. You'll be sad. Well, you find somebody else and then you dump them. You're happy again. All right. So, right. That would work. But if you truly want to grow in character, if you truly want to be opened up, if you truly want to see who you really are, warts and all get married. Because marriage will test who you really are, who you really are. It's amazing how many times I meet couples that are divorced. I meet him. He's really nice. I meet her. She's really nice. Uh, Pretty much any divorced couple I meet, I go, they're both really nice. You know why? I don't know them that well. They knew each other really well. That's why they got a divorce, right? So, because it shows your real you, and then in your real you, you have to decide, do I want to adjust the real me, or do I want to force adjusting the real them? Which is usually what happens. I want them to change, and I want to stay who I am. Now, it's not every case, it's kind of stereotypical, but again, it exposes the real us, it displays our character. One of the things I'll I'll tell people is if you want to serve Jesus without impediment, stay single. If you want to become like a sacrificial Jesus, get married, because that's the difference. Getting married will open you up. And so that's the heart of this whole study that we're engaging in, right, right? understanding why is marriage hard, understanding what it is Jesus has for marriage and what it is we're supposed to live out. Now, to get to this, I I think we have to set it against the backdrop, right? We have to kind of go, okay, why is a good marriage difficult? Why does it take investment and work and effort? Who's to blame? What's the problem? What's the issue? Here's the deal. You want to know who to blame? Nudist vegetarians, all right? The nudist, hippie vegetarians are to blame. They're always to blame, all right? So this is a very simple formula you will never forget. It's the nudist vegetarian hippies that are to blame for why my marriage can be a challenge. All right. How does this start off? Where do we go? It goes into design. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to the book of Genesis chapter one. You know, Genesis, you're doing your read through. You're in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter one, starting in verse 26. This is then God said, right? He said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And so, says so, so God created man in his own image in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. Here's the only real important point I want to highlight. Notice that it says, God said, let us make man in our plural. Father, son, and spirit set out the task of making men and women in their image and likeness. And what you're going to see when you get into chapter 2 is he takes those individuals, he puts them together, the two become one. What that means is our marriages, our relationship maritally is iconic, is symbolic, mirrors the image of the triune God. You are a celebration of God's triune person when you're married together. That means your marriage is theology, your marriage is doctrine, your marriage is worship, that's the foundation. So as soon as we start saying, well, marriage is about my happiness, we've lost sight of the fact that marriage is about God's glory. And when God is truly glorified in my marriage, man, I'm going to be tremendously happy. But if God is not glorified in my marriage and my marriage doesn't try to represent the Godhead, man, I'm not going to be terribly happy. I'm going to be probably kind of bitter and upset and tired and angry and done with this and not fulfilled and all those things. Unfortunately, we elevate ourselves in the worship scale. I want my needs to be met as opposed to God's glory to be revealed. But, but the design was really to mirror the image of God, his plural image in us when we are married. So that's what you sort of see in Genesis 1. Then you zoom into Genesis chapter 2. You see where he makes the man and he makes the woman. How it all comes out, it says in Genesis 2, 7, It says, the Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. It says, then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and keep it. I love this. It wasn't like because we sinned, Adam had to go punch in. That isn't it. Before Adam sins, Adam had a job. Men had jobs. Men had work. God says, I made Adam. Notice it says outside of Eden, outside of the garden. He makes them outside of Eden. And once he makes them, he puts them in Eden. He says, all right, I need you to do this. I need you to tend it. I need you to keep it. You have a job. Men should have jobs. And so this man, he has a job, which is great. And it wasn't the result of sin. It was God's design. But it appears that he had a task that he could not accomplish alone. So it says in verse 18, then the Lord God said, it's not good that a man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him so the lord god caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept he took out one of his ribs and closed up in its place with flesh and the rib the lord then took from the man and he made a woman and brought her to the man a helper fit for him not a competitor not a one just like the other no he gave a compliment says adam's got a job but he can't do it on his own he needs a helper who is fit for him and they together work in unison different but one for this common goal what was the common goal it was god's garden common goal wasn't just simply their happiness or their union but they worked together for the common goal of god's glory god's garden god's purposes god was first and foremost and they were truly complementarian. I mean, even in the sense of how they are wired physiologically, they're designed for complement. The sexual union is complement, not competition. Amen. And so they complement each other under God's design. So it says, then the man woke up, which probably has a lot to it. So it says, then the man said, it's, it's You know, God makes this woman. The man wakes up. The man said, what? Booyah is what he said. But he said it in Hebrew, which means this is at last bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken out of man. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. It says, and the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Again, there's that symbol of Trinity. An individual, an individual, they come together, they become one. And in that oneness, God also dwells with them. He is the one that brings the oneness together. Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 19. It's a mystery that God forges. And so you can picture just these Three ideas, God is like a sphere, man is a sphere, woman is a sphere, but they're connected, they're overlapped, they're interlaced together. That is our design. This is the way it was meant to be. So, husbands and wives work together in complement for God's glory, tending God's garden. And when they do that, there is deep and abiding unity. That's the way it was designed. But then we get into Genesis chapter 3, where there's the divide. Right? And the serpent, the Tom Brady that he is, comes stepping in. Alright. Listen, if you're a New England fan, just repent and move on. That's all I'm saying. So, um, so Tom Brady, the serpent, comes in and, and and says, Hey, you know, God's put you on the outs, he's lied to you, he's deceived you. You don't know, you don't understand, he's holding out on you, you could have more. And then the woman says, Yes, I believe it, I'm buying in, that sounds good to me. So, verse six. So, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took the fruit, she ate it, and then she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and she ate, and he ate with her, right? So you get this picture, we've always kind of imagined like there's this serpent and there's Eve and they're just chatting, Right? And then she says, This is a great idea. And she takes and she eats and she goes and finds her husband and he's working in the garden somewhere. And she says, Hey, you should have some of this. This is not what happens. What happens is there's Adam, there's the woman, there's the serpent, they're chatting. Adam's just hanging out, just listening to the conversations is a little bit like letting your wife like haggle over the car price and you just watch. Right? Just I don't have an opinion. Right? So, yeah, you know, she's good at this. Yeah. So This happens, and then she eats, and then she just, here, and he's like, sure. Really, there's the the first big error. Instead of Adam going, wait, wait, I have a job. It's to tend and keep the garden. I have a job, and this is my helper, and I'm going to guard her, and love her, and protect her, and not let this happen, and get in the way of Tom Brady the serpent, and not let any of this unfold. Instead of that, he's like, Yeah. Which is what some men do. I think tragically a lot of men in a lot of different contexts just huh. And so that's sort of the first thing that, that erupts on the scene. And so that's a big problem. Then it goes into verse seven, then their eyes were both opened, and they knew that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves wine cloths. It's interesting, what what this creates in a in a residue way is uh Husbands and wives stay private to each other. There's just some things you hide. There's just some things you cover up. There's just some things you're not candid about. You always notice that it's like, I don't quite know you. I don't quite understand you. I don't quite, I don't feel like you're fully communicating with me. Everything you're thinking. Welcome to Genesis 3. So they cover themselves, even to each other. I mean, they're husband and wife. They're one flesh. It should be like, you know what? Hey, you're naked. I'm naked. This is awesome. You know, it was, they were naked and unashamed. Now they're naked, ashamed, and they're covering each other up in each other's eyes. Right? It's the most unnatural idea that two become one and now you want to cover up, but that's what they want to do. And that still goes on today. We, we hide from each other. And then it says the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Right? And that's true too. We try to hide certain things from God. We want to run from God, flee from God. We don't want God's plan in our life. We don't want to do everything that God calls us to do, whatever it is. That's what they're doing. They're hiding from God. They hide some things about each other from each other, and then they hide from God. All because Adam didn't step up and try to protect his family or uphold his calling. Right? So here's the brokenness. Here's the divide. Here's the problem. And this has, then, this cascading effect. You get into chapter 3, verse 16, where you start to see, well, here's the consequence. I mean, this is enough already, but then there's a consequence. And it says to the woman, he says, Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. This is a consequence. This is not the way it was. This is what happens in the aftermath of the rebellion.
1: And you might look at this and go, oh
0: man, she's just going to have this pining love desire for her husband. She, he will rule over her. That's not what it says. It's not what it means. In fact, you go into chapter four, it talks about Cain and Abel. And it says, Cain, sin is desiring you and you must overcome it before he waxes brother Abel, right? And so the idea here is that because of the rebellion of Eden, what was going to happen is that the wife or the woman was going to desire to dominate her husband. But her husband would rule over her. In other words, it's just this spiraling desire to dominate, to control, to rule, to win, to say this is what I want and this is what I'm going to get. It's going to go both ways. Don't think it's, oh, this is what women do. This is what people do. All people do this. Right? Somehow we want what we want and we're going to do what we need to do to get it. Now we might play the 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 mercy card. We might play the harsh card. We might play the pity me card. We might play the I demand it card. doesn't matter. It's all the same. I want what I want in the end. How do I get it? I'm going to cry to get it. I'm going to yell to get it. I'm going to demand to get it. I'm going to manipulate to get It doesn't matter. It's still the fundamental problem. So in our marriages, the things we face in the divide is this this, this battle of control. And again, what chiefly happened is they lost sight of what their calling was. He had a job and she helped to the job and they all did it for the glory of God. But now the glory of the individual became supreme. The happiness of the individual became supreme. We all went our own way doing our own thing. And so in this, you have this big divide. And then it gets worse in verse 23. It says, therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. So not only were husband and wife going to be at odds, but then men and women were going to be at odds with God. So you get another image in your head. There's God and he's this sphere. And man's a sphere and woman's a sphere. But they're all at odds with each other. All of them. Right? Even God's at odds with humanity. Why do you think God says you're sinful, there's wrath, there's this thing called hell, I have standards. That's God at odds with humanity. Now God creates a solution, as we'll see, but the problem is that's God at odds with men and women, but then husbands and wives are at odds with each other too. This is the problem. And again, it's all rooted in our own self-interest and wanting what we want. Our needs, our feelings, our desires, our stability, whatever. So, design, and then dilemma. And, and that's kind of where it sits by the end of Genesis 3. The question is, well, does Genesis 4 have the solution? Well, no, the solution isn't spelled out directly in Genesis 4. It's actually spelled out in Genesis 3, deeply embedded, when it says there is a seed that will come from the woman and bruise the serpent's head. He will turn this whole thing upside down and bring redesign. That redesign is the gospel. Here's why I say this. At the beginning I said, uh, go to a bookstore. You're going to find tons of books. It says how to communicate better, how to be more romantic, how to be more thoughtful, how to be more understanding, how to understand her needs, his needs. The list goes on and on and on. But here's the ultimate core. We're broken. And all those good ideas are band-aids to the deepest problem that needs the gospel. And so we have to think in terms of if I want to have a truly great marriage as God designed, I need to first and foremost realize that the gospel is the center to that, that Christ died for my sin, my rebellion, my shame, my bad decision, my absolute give God the finger and everybody around me attitude. Jesus died for that. And he rose to cleanse me. He rose to remove the guilt and all the junk. And only there can I begin to start to fathom the real shoots that come out of that. And what it means to be a great husband or a great wife. It has to start with the gospel. The gospel is key. It's just key. Grace is just key. Because ultimately when I argue with my wife which is almost never because i'm perfect um or i have an attitude or i don't want to just do something that she wants to do or i just want to veg out or i don't feel like communicating all of those things are not like i didn't read enough marriage books that's just sin it's just sin the gospel is the only thing that's going to really help address that These other things are pointers, but ultimately I need to deal with my sin. And that's the gospel. And with the gospel, Jesus reconciles us to God, reconciles us to each other. And so if we want to then talk about husbands, where we finally get to this morning, what it means is that we have to be gospel-driven husbands. It starts with being gospel-driven. It's just, that's the place it has to begin. Otherwise, it's just, I'm just managing my sin on my own, in my own strength, which is going to fail. And so a gospel-driven husband realizes or has rooted in him the image alignment that he needs. He remembers, oh, I'm in the image of God. So that's what I want to be like. I want to be like Jesus. A gospel-driven husband has implanted in him transforming grace. That's the power that is necessary. A gospel-driven husband has bestowed upon him the importance of original design, not what I think is good for marriage, but what Jesus thinks is good for marriage. A gospel-driven husband has in his uh, life God's personal daily presence where we can go and talk and say God help me or I, I'm not seeing this or I, I need your 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 wisdom and then ultimately a gospel driven husband does all of it for the glory of the father the son and the spirit that's why you do it gets back to the garden it's not just about me being a happy husband though that's cool something grander it's about God being glorified in me being. A husband. So, with that said, a gospel-driven husband starts as a gospel-driven man. If you go back to Titus chapter 2, it says that the older men are to be certain things and the younger men are to be certain things. That's the base plate. That that, that is really the waypoints of a godly, gospel-driven man. To be those things in that list. And I would advise the younger women of Redemption Church to uh, look at men through that lens. If you're thinking about, I'm dating this guy, I think he might be the one. Are those things true of him? Because that's where his husbandry starts. Before he's a husband, he's a man. And so when you're there and you're writing your name, Susie Bieber, right? Or Susie Jonas, Which is so 2010, I know. All right, so um, you might think Susie Tebow. All right, so um, not so much enamored with how he looks and what he does and whether he's known, but what he's known by. Because that's where it starts. It starts with being a gospel-driven man. That's a good husband. And then from there, or at least that's a good potential husband, and from there, he can live out the three fundamentals. I'm just going to focus on three fundamentals of what it means to be a gospel-driven husband. The first is this. A gospel-driven husband, he leads. He leads. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, Paul says, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is is God. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 23, it says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and he himself, its savior. Now, uh, real quick, his savior says, right? Um, Two things. Uh, First of all, I'm just the mailman. I didn't write the mail. I just deliver the mail. And I'm delivering this mail. Now, as I do so, I don't want anybody to run down the road and go, oh, that's what this means. Uh, Matter of fact, you almost have to hear the next two weeks out to to know really what those two sections of Scripture mean. But I want to tell you really quick what they don't necessarily mean and what they don't say. Uh, They don't say the man is better than the woman. They don't say that. People read this, and go, oh, so you're saying men are better than women. Yeah, that's exactly what Paul said right, right there. But I want you to understand that men are better than women. That's not what he said. But people sort of read this like that's what he's saying. It's not what he's saying. Paul's already affirmed that there's neither male nor female in Christ. He has affirmed equality, but he sees difference. Same with Jesus. He would affirm equality, but see difference. But this does not say that men are better than women. Another thing it doesn't say is that the head of every woman is a man. It says the head of a wife is her husband. So this idea that men can just tell women what to do, it doesn't say that. Another thing, while a husband uh, has this, this responsibility, and it tells wives to submit to their husbands, it does not tell husbands that they can demand that their wives submit. I want you to catch that. Just because God says, here's what I have for wives, it doesn't, by extension, say, and so husbands, you can demand that. It doesn't say that, doesn't mean that. Another thing is that when you look in the New Testament and it's going to say submit for wives, it doesn't say wives obey your husbands. It says wives submit to your husbands. It tells children to obey their parents, and that's awesome, <laughs> All right? But submit doesn't mean obey. So, so when we go down these roads, oh, this is, this is just oppression. This is just sexism. This is just chauvinism. No, it's not, it's not that. But another thing we have to acknowledge that is that this doesn't say, well, this is just cultural either isn't just saying, well, it's just for them. Look at, look at the comparison, right? As Christ is the head of the church. As God is the head of Christ. We wouldn't say, well, that's just cultural. It anchors it very particular in this Trinity matrix. Again, it goes back to design. We represent Trinity. The way our marriages play out represents Trinity. This isn't about value. This isn't about worth. This isn't about who's more important than the other. That's like arguing what's more important, the DVR or the TV. Duh. All right. So they both work together different for a common good. Right. So it's the same idea. And so husbands, we are called to lead. Now, I think part of the problem with this is because we measure these texts against abuses. Right. You have two fundamental abuses. The first is that jackwad, jerk, pushy, just punkish guy that's demanding and abusive. And we go, well, we don't want that. Well, guess what? Neither does Jesus. If you're an abusive guy, stop. It's not what Jesus wants. Not, it's not at all what Jesus has called a man to. That's just selfish, sexist, punkishness. Don't. That's wrong. At the same time, there's the other end of the spectrum, right? Which is the wussified, castrated man-boy, all right? Truly, right? <laughs> and, and you know this guy, because all of his buddies talk about how he has no pants, all right? Um, he, just, he just pushed around and wallflower guy, and you know what? That's an abuse also. That's an irresponsible leader, and Jesus doesn't want that. Right? Jesus is not looking for that. He's not looking for jerks, and he's not looking for wussies. He's looking for those who live like him, who do like him, who think like him, who care like him, who serve like him. That's the idea of what it means for a husband to be head. It's serious, and it's sacrificial. It's not saying, I get my way, because you're not allowed to say, I get my way. And it's also not saying, well, I'm such a nice guy, I don't ever try to lead. Because that's not, that's not the best way either. In fact, I, I would say it this way. Um, the idea of being a head in a marriage has this idea of authority, but it's not authoritative. It has authority, but it's not authoritative. In other words, you're not supposed to be a bad, mean boss. You're supposed to be like a gunny sergeant. All right, which you know that you have this responsibility to lead and, you know, authority is given to you. But your first thought isn't, how do I milk something out of everybody around me? Your first thought is for the good of your crew, for the good of every man that you are trying to get from point A to point B. You want all of them not only to live, you want them to exceed and excel and be amazing in what they do. That is a good head. Think of like a good headmaster, or a good head of state, or the good head of a committee. Those are not people that say, I get my way. There are people that say, I do what I do so everybody else can succeed. That is a good husband being a good head. So, it's not authoritative, but it has authority. But with authority, you know what it also means? There's accountability, and one day there's judgment. Men, there's accountability. And one day there's judgment because your wife is Jesus' daughter, girl. She's the one she died for. He cares about how you handle her. And so as a head, you realize that one day Jesus is going to say, all right, h- how did you do with her? Because I, I really love her. And so we take those things Seriously. It means leading, but it means leading like him. How does Jesus lead? Jesus leads through loving, right? So if we're going to be gospel-driven husbands who lead, we lead as gospel-driven husbands who love. Ephesians chapter 5. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Your authority is redemptive. My authority is redemptive. In other words, I take the privileges of my headship and I submit them to what the priorities are, which is the good of the one that is my bride. I mean, it's that simple. I mean, when you you look at this, I mean, think about uh, of all the things that Jesus uh, did in life that could have been compared to a husband. Husbands teach like Jesus did the parables. Husbands heal like Jesus did the masses. Uh, Husbands, uh, you know, keep your wife from religion like Jesus did uh, the masses from the religious people. That's not what it says. It gives the the ultimate equivalent of love. It says, husbands, bleed out. Husbands, sacrifice. Husbands, be slaughtered for your wives just as Christ was for the church. That's the image. Suddenly, like my wife will say, I just get to submit. You got to die. So when people, oh, man, this submission thing, this is just more sexism. No, No, it's not because it requires men to die for their wives. Again, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Willingly, willingly. And think about the church that Jesus died for. I mean, it wasn't like the church first wanted Jesus, right? 1 John 4, we didn't love God, but he first loved us. Jesus died for a church that didn't even love him. And then you think about it. Jesus always gives more love to the church than the church will give to him. And we will always fall down in our faithfulness, but he is always faithful. No matter what we do, what we say, how we act, how belligerent we get, stupid we get, idolatrous we get. He always keeps loving. Husbands, love your wives like that. She's not pleasant, tough, love her. She's not happy, love her. She's difficult, love her. Why? Because Jesus does you. Right? Because Jesus does you. I mean, that's the idea. In fact, if you look at this and you take it a step further, what you see is that uh, Jesus takes up husbandry more for her good than his own. He takes up husbandry for her good more than his own. Verse 26, uh, again, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. I love this. Here's the image. Jesus says, I give myself completely so I can make her 100% what she was meant to be. That's the calling of a husband. The calling of a husband isn't, I have headship, I have authority, so you can make me happy. It's, I have authority and I have headship, so I can exalt you. I can lift you up as my wife. That is biblical husbandry. And so it's little things like elevate her, elevate her so she does not have to basically assert herself because you're not doing it or fight for her so she doesn't feel the need to fight for herself or romance her so she doesn't feel the need to retreat into fiction or fantasy or sin. Value her so she doesn't feel the need to go find value someplace else. See, that, that's that's what a husband is called to. In fact, it goes on in verses 28 through 30, to say we're to nourish and cherish. These come up in our vows. Nourish is to feed. Cherish is to keep warm, literally. Feed them emotionally. Feed them spiritually. Pour in. This is effort. It is not passive. It's active. That is biblical husbands. And then it goes on into verses 31 through 33. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And this mystery is profound. He says, what I'm really saying is, you know what? Husbands, love your wives as yourself. And he has this whole thing. And really, what this ultimately is saying is, put her first. Before your job, before your kids, before your mother, before your mother, um, before your hobbies, before your friends, you put her first. It's It's that clear. In fact, I see this in my own grandfather. My grandfather is 91 years old. My grandmother is 90 years old. She has a broken pelvis. She has cancer and she has dementia. And I talked to him just a couple of months ago. And now they're both in a, in a home. This was before they are in the home. And she fell over one time. And it took, her, took him two hours to get her back into her chair. And we asked him, we're like, why didn't you just call the paramedics? And he's like, well, my job is to take care of her. So he wouldn't even call the paramedics. And then he's got all of these ailments. His knees are completely shot. And this is no exaggeration. I said, Grandpa, how are you getting around the house? He goes, well, I just go on my knees and push her wheelchair on my knees. And, and, and he's a really quality man. He gets it. I mean, all the way to the point of saying, you know, what? I'm going to lay myself down. Literally, I'm going to be on my knees. I'm going to be using what little strength I have just to lift her up. And part of it is I don't want somebody else to come in and not see her dignified. Right. That's how much he cares. In other words, he takes his husbandry and elevates. He elevates. And so husbands, they love. And then last, a gospel driven husband. He learns. First Peter chapter three says, likewise, husbands live with your wives in an understanding way. Live with them. Right. I mean, really get on the love seat. Don't have the lazy boys. That's sin. All right. Get on the love seat. Cuddle up in bed, whatever you need to do, but live with them. Really live with them. If she has a sewing room and you have a shop and you don't see each other, stop. Love seed. All right. So you live with them, but it says live with them in an understanding way. This means you have to become a specialist. You have to become a student. This is not like I can take a crash course and that's all they need. I'll read one book and I'm good to go. It doesn't mean that. It means truly understanding. I've joked before. I'm an Ellenologist. That's what I am. My wife's name's Ellen. I have a specialty. Ellenology. That's the study of my wife. I cannot take Ellenology and apply it to another woman. It won't work. I have to be a student of her. And she changes all the time. And so do I, right? which means it's perpetual you're always looking you're always evaluating you're always assessing you're always trying to understand you always want to make sure you're aware and in tune you want to know where are her buttons and then you put a big thing that says do not touch ever right ever don't touch the buttons that's what you want to do all right You want to know what her fears are and ease them. You want to know what her insecurities are and reinforce that she shouldn't have those. You want to know what makes her happy and pursue that. You want to know what she worries about late at night and try to get ahead of that. You want to know where her sins are and help her be encouraged in that. You want to know where she thrives and aid that. That's what you do. That's understanding. It's being a student. Always and all the time. And I think it's important. you got to understand, I think each of these commands given to men are given because these are the places we struggle. I think we struggle in leading. I think we struggle with the family. I think we struggle in loving as Christ, and I think we struggle sometimes in learning. Like, our wives are way better. at it. Like, they know our favorite meal, our favorite color, our favorite car, our favorite everything. We get quizzed. We're like, I don't know. We're like, she likes blue, you know? And there's, for a woman, there's no such color as blue, all right? There's, I don't know, like, funky name, color blue, but there is not blue, all right? So, You need to know funky name color. That's what you need to know, all right? So, understanding. And then it says, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you in the grace of life. Showing honor literally means respect. Showing her respect. It says as the weaker vessel. This doesn't mean intellectually weaker, spiritually weaker, anything like that. It means that, for the most part, unless it's a Russian power lifter, you can probably win in an arm wrestling match. That's what it means. Those Soviets, though, back in the day, they were tough. No dude could win, so... But for the most part, that's what and so you, you dwell with an understanding and respect and you understand that. Yeah, you could just throw your weight around, but that's not good. It's not good. You do it different. And then more than that, it says so that your prayers may not be hindered. Marriage is a micro church. It's a micro church. And if a pastor is treating a church poorly, God isn't listening to that pastor's prayers. And the same way husbands, if we're treating our wives poorly, God says, no, 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 no not listening. Treat her well. Treat her well, and I'm listening. Treat her poorly, I'm not listening. And so it gives us incentive to treat them well. So, men, your being a husband is worship by design after the Father. It is doctrine by declaring the Son Jesus. It is spiritual by depending on the Holy Spirit. It is missional by, by displaying the gospel of grace. So husbands, love like Jesus. Love like Jesus. When she's sweet, love like Jesus. When she's bitter, love like Jesus. When she's happy, love like Jesus. When she's sad, love like Jesus. When she's angry, love like Jesus. When she's pleasant, love like Jesus. When she's hot, oh, man, love like Jesus. When she's frumpy, oh, man, love like Jesus. When she's righteous, live like Jesus. And when she's sinful, live like Jesus. Listen, when you said, I do you said i do you said i do you didn't say i might if i will consider provided that you said i do so will you love her will you honor her will you cherish her for better for worse for richer for poor, in sickness or in health whether she's a nagger she's great whether you think she's the bomb or she is irritating you And you said, I do, I will, I promise. No different than what Jesus did for you. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for these reminders that are both pleasant and painful. Just as a husband, when I evaluate my own life, my own marriage, I see why I need your grace. I see why I need your example. I see where... I choose my own way instead of yours. I see where I choose my own selfishness. And I want my wife to exist for my happiness at times. And that is not your best. And that is not going to make anybody happy. And I know that. So I thank you for these loving, yet, like I said, painful reminders at times. Of what you call us to as men. To lead, to love, to learn like you. We love you and praise you in your name.